Welcome back to the After Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn McDonald, Editor-in-Chief, and today I am talking with Lisa Selen Davis, who is the writer of the new book, Tomboy. Hello, Lisa. Hello. Thank, Thank you so much, so much for being with us. Yeah, I'm psyched to be here. I am super excited to be talking to you because I read your first article that came out in the New York Times ages ago. It made quite a splash in the lesbian feminist world because... Not a lot of people are talking about what happens to girls when we, when we, you know, constrict um, gender roles and kind of push them into these pink boxes. And specifically, you talked about the disappearance of the word tomboy, which is something that lesbians um, have been talking about, have been trying to raise an alarm about. So everyone really was excited when this article came out. So that was the first of three articles that you put out on the topic. And from this came your book. So tell us about this. How, how did you, um, what inspired you to first um, get into this topic? Well, I have often translated the uncomfortable parts of my life or shameful parts of my life into op-eds and essays without thinking that much about my children reading them later. It's, a, it's much later that I considered that aspect of it. And so I had had a number of experiences with my child where adults were really trying to be supportive and facilitate her. Um, she was, since she was three, she didn't really want to wear dresses. She played with boys and girls. She, um, she wanted to have short hair by the time she was four. And she was interested in pursuits labeled as masculine, some of them. And she was really an in-between kid in a world where kids were really segregating by sex. And from a very young age, the adults who knew her well were making assumptions about gender identity. And I was asking why are we basing gender identity on gender stereotypes? When I was a kid, all girls were dressed like this, like little boys most of the time. And we worked so hard to tell girls that they could have access to this stuff that's marked as for boys. Why are we now saying they're a boy if they like it? And I didn't mean to be provocative and honestly didn't know I was being provocative or stepping into this <laughs> I thought I was asking interesting and important questions and just grappling with my experience of having a child who did not conform not only to modern stereotypes about what girls are like, but the ideas in my head about who my kid was going to be based on her body. And yeah, it really caused, there was a big backlash, but there was also a lot of support and I think the combination of wondering why that why girls like that were so common in my youth and then the big uproar that talking about it caused, those two things together made me realize there was a book in it. But it, it took me a year and a half to work up the courage to even write the book proposal. Wow. So say a little bit more about that. The um, the response, the hubbub, what what was the anger all about? Some of it was about the title, which was my daughter is not transgender. She's a tomboy. And, you know, writers don't write 
you're an editor. <laughs> you don't, I didn't get to choose that headline. Um, it's not a terrible headline, but I felt like it it put the emphasis on the not the emphasis on the not transgender, and not the emphasis on how do we make space for trans kids without reinforcing gender stereotypes when we find kids who don't hew to those stereotypes. So the backlash was a combination of people writing articles, you know, with my name in the headline saying what I got wrong or saying what a bad parent I was. Lots of commentary on my parenting and my, myself as a person, which is a way of not engaging with my points. Right, of course. Um, a lot of threats, um, kidnapping my child, you know, things that were things that were terrifying to me because I had written hundreds and hundreds of articles, but I'd never been the subject of a Twitter storm. And I had never experienced people threatening you because they didn't like what you said. You and know? threatening your small child. Exactly. <laughs> um, so that was uncomfortable, of course. Eventually... What I tried to do was read through the criticism and I tried to learn what there was to learn and figure out who was worth listening to and who wasn't. My radar is a little off about that. I think as a person with incredibly low self-esteem and very little self-confidence, I tend to um, take in like too much of it and think mm -hmm. anything who criticizes me needs to be listened to instead of saying like, I can decide who's full of shit and, and who has something to offer. Mm -hmm. But I kind of steeled myself and read through it and then thought, well, people are saying that I don't understand gender. And wild since you're female, female. <laughs> in a patriarchy. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's a whole other subject about who, who gets to talk about what and, um, you know, when people, I get occasional hate notes saying, how dare you as a cis woman write about gender? And I reply, you know, gender is difficult for straight, white, cis, Christian men. It's limiting for them too. So right. nobody has a lock on this subject. However, if you think I don't understand gender, let me try to understand what you mean by that. And in the end, I discovered that that very word gender means so many different things to different people that it's really hard to have consensus. It's really hard for these people in opposing, occupying opposing spaces on the left to work together when we can't agree on what words mean and we can't agree on what woman means mm -hmm. and girl and boy. And we can't agree on does gender mean norms and stereotypes that are that are culturally created or does gender mean an identity that is innate and biological? It's very hard to, if we don't at least understand that we see these things differently, then we cannot work together at all. I mean, we can't even have conversations because we're not agreeing on the same language. It's like we are, um, you know, somebody says a word that you think to mean something else. And in your head, you have to start translating everything they say through your own bias filter. So of course, these, uh, these conversations are, are unproductive. It's scary to think how vitriolic they get and just the level of um, the level of rage that somebody has to feel to threaten your small child. <laughs> and, and these other things because you wrote something they didn't like. 
Um, but that's, that's where we're, I mean, that's the world in which we're living. And I, I saw like one of your recent tweets from just this week um, spoke to the same thing. It's a part of cancel culture and, and the same fight is happening right now. You know, people are calling for um, JK Rowling to be burned at the stake, essentially like actually executed. People are, you know, um, hashtagging RIP JK Rowling. And so when the cultural conversation, even for those of us who are the most privileged that have the most cultural access to become so, um, so, so angry, um, is, I feel like I, I've, I've lost my train of thought mid sentence, but what I'm, what I'm going for is the issue. One issue that we have with cancel culture is that, the left sees it as a justified weapon. I see constantly people saying things like cancel culture is the tool is the tool of the proletariat um, because we have to be able to cancel those voices that are um, that are saying problematic things that are saying um, fascistic things, because, of course, anything that I don't like immediately has to be escalated to, you know, in line with Nazi propaganda but like this is where we're at. You can't um, you can't even reach to define these words in order to have the conversation without risking someone trying to trying to silence you from the same side of the political aisle that you are on. Yeah, and and it's interesting because what what kind of book would I have written if I hadn't had an experience of cancel culture. I don't know. I was extremely careful writing this book. I did not feel like making vulnerable people more vulnerable. And I thought, you know, it's been three and a half years since that original op-ed in the times. And I stand by my point more than ever, but I think I would have shifted knowing what I know now, I would have shifted the language only a little bit, in that I would be slightly less didactic and I would be asking more questions like how can we facilitate trans kids without reinforcing gender stereotypes? And, you know, I don't know how my daughter, either one of my daughters will identify later. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like I learned so much researching this book I learned so much about gender that Mm -hmm. none of the professionals in our lives knew anything about. Mm -hmm. You mean the professionals in you and your daughter's life, the teachers, the people, the educators, the the doctor who we would go in for a flu shot and would say, what pronoun are you using? And on the one hand, this was like such a sweet thing, but when you're only asking one kid, Right, because one kid looks different. Because right. one kid isn't conforming to stereotypes. Then you're sending this message um, that there is only one way to be a girl, and it and and so I do. I do feel I learned a lot from talking to people who disagree with me, but I didn't move that much on my original thesis. Mm-hmm. And I think that my children have already learned so much. They've been asked about pronouns and they've had, you know, seminars about identity. 
And nowhere in this has there been a discussion of gender stereotypes. They've right, never, of course, they've of never course. had any training on gender stereotypes. And yet the research in my book shows that stereotypes are more present in their lives than ever before. And I think mm-hmm. these parents think children are liberated. Stereotypes are a 1970s issue. We took care of it. But actually, gender stereotypes are are literally woven into the fabric of their clothes. They're manufactured in their toys. They're coloring every aspect of their worlds. So whatever had to happen to get me here mm-hmm. is kind of okay because I learned so much and I created this document that I hope will enlighten people. Mm-hmm. However, threatening people because you feel threatened is is tough, you know, is, and I don't know, you know, feeling threatened versus being threatened, feeling violated versus being violated. These are big subjects and we need to learn we need to really be remembering how to think. Mm-hmm. We really need to be able to have it be complex, ambiguous, uncomfortable, and okay that way. Well, your book definitely was uncomfortable, complex, and made me think. So <laughs> I I would definitely recommend it um, even to lesbian feminists and radical feminists who think they already know um, everything they need to know about gender. Um, so I do want to dive into a little bit. One of the things that um, really you you hammered home so well in your book is the aspect of um, consumerism and how consumerism um, has actually created gender and then continues to replicate it. So tell me a little bit about how you, um, what you study here. Yeah. One of the things that fascinated me was finding that until a hundred years ago, most kids were having what we would think of today as a gender-neutral childhood. And boys and girls had long hair and they wore dresses. And um, they did that until they went to school, which at that time was around age six in, in the middle of the 19th century, when more kids started to go to school and more kids started to have what we now think of as childhood, which, which was a really new idea then. And they had this gender-neutral decades of this gender neutrality because gender, sex, and sexuality were all thought of as one thing. And so to emphasize the sex of a young child was to emphasize their later sexual being as a man or woman. So it was all played down. Mm -hmm. Children were addressed according to age, not sex. You know, when I look around at the kind of hypersexuality that children are being exposed to now, I almost long for those times. Can can yeah. adults just pretend that children are not sexed? Because when I see Bratz dolls and the, you know, yeah. the encouragement, um, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is how often um, ch- uh, children's toys that are directed at girls are about, um, are focused on preening um, grooming, putting makeup on, getting dressed. So it, it, the, there is a sort of obsession that adults are building in to these toys of, of sexuality. Yes, for sure. I mean, there are all kinds of messages encoded in these toys and, and messages that we send to them about what's normal for them based on mm-hmm. their body, you know, mm-hmm. which is, The big thing I want people to decouple is like expectations and bodies. It's just your Mm -hmm. body. I Mm -hmm. hope you love it, 
but it doesn't it doesn't tell us much about you. It mm-hmm. mostly tells us how we're going to treat you, limit you, and and construct an idea of normal for you. Um, so. I kind of interrupted you when you were when you were really starting to hit your stride about these gender neutral toys at the turn of the century. There was a very specific point at which the toys became hyper gendered. So tell tell our audience a bit about that. <laughs> and I'll try not to derail. <laughs> so no, derailing's good. Later in at near the end of the nineteenth century, as the fields of psychology and sexology, the study of human sexuality, are advancing. There's a beginning of an understanding of homosexuals as a kind of person, as opposed to homosexuality as just an act. A behavior, right. As an identity, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's debate over whether or not those that's okay. Because a couple of the early sexologists were also gay, and they were like, hey, this is a normal human variation, not a deviation. Mm-hmm. Um, but they lost that battle. Mm-hmm. And so... The field of child psychology was also emerging, and those child psychologists started encouraging parents, especially to rear their little boys as little men. So the opposite mm-hmm. of not emphasizing their sex. Now they were told to emphasize their sex so that they wouldn't grow up to be gay. Mm-hmm. That, that begins with gendering their toys and clothes um, to reinforce gender roles and how these children should be, how they should behave and what's masculine and feminine. And then as this, as the 20th century goes on, it starts to evolve. In the middle of the 20th century, it gets colors become kind of fully coded. That takes a while. And for a while, people think pink is masculine because it's a variant of red. And they think blue is feminine because it's related to the Virgin Mary. But eventually we settle on this idea that pink is for girls and blue is for boys. And a whole bunch of other things happen, like prenatal sex testing and recessions and feminism. Over and over, we have these cultural changes that at times peel back the gendering of childhood. And then when those eras are over, the gendering pushes forward in ways never before seen. And right. It's 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 analogous to the waves of feminism. There's there's strides made and then there's a huge backlash and we are taken back in time almost. It's taking on some interesting new shapes and it and, and it and it is one hundred percent connected to feminism because every time there's a wave of feminism, those feminists tend to rear their, their daughters as tomboys, and then those tomboys often grow up to reject that and return to gendering. And I you know, my thesis is that in the last 20 years, the gendering of childhood has become so severe, um, so pervasive, that some of what's happening now with dozens of gender identities or the way we're teaching kids about gender has to do with pushing back against that, that, the, that there's hardly any room left. If, if we're going to be a, a gender conforming girl, it's like such a tiny little narrow range of normal. How many girls can actually perfect that? So mm-hmm. one way to respond to the oppression, let's say, of being a girl is to not identify as a girl or to offer other options of identity. And I don't, know if that will work. And it's certainly not an option that girls in, in many parts of the world have to just opt out. Um, right. <laughs> I, my, my hope, I mean, my goal in writing this book 
was to cue parents and educators into how we are participating in this narrow range of normal. And, and that it's actually not that hard to create new ideas of normal and to widen the range of normal for boys and girls and to somehow do that without throwing shade on trans kids and trans community all for fighting for their liberation. I think there is some way that those things, those movements can peacefully coexist as long as we understand that gender is a belief system and people have different belief systems. And mm -hmm. how do we respect those? Yeah, I mean, I think that was that was for me the biggest challenge in reading your book because I have, um, after you know, reading all of the history that you write in the book and having years of experience as a female person living in patriarchy, you know, I've come to all the same conclusions that girlhood is essentially a grooming process where we teach girls that there's acceptable ways to be a woman in the world, and that those usually involve making yourself smaller, more easily objectified, more easily, more easily um, a consumer of, you know, a, of a cultural product, um, which, um, but, but, you know, our, our analysis diverges on this key point because I am, I struggle to understand how you can see this trend of girls being um, told that if they like trucks or if they like the color blue, that they are boys, but then that there are some people who truly are um, cut out for a life in, in which they are determined their, their behavior or their modes of dress determines their biology. Um, how do you square that circle that some kids could be born in the wrong body, but not your kid? Well, my, you know, one of the things that's been tough is the people that come up to me or I'm talking to someone who's the kid, parent of a, a child who's distressed about his or her or their gender. And I, we talk about it and they ask me about my kid and I say like, so far everything's going okay. And, um, and they say, just you wait, she's, <laughs> she's going to hit puberty and she's going to want to kill herself. And I'm like, Maybe, but what a thing to say to someone. Mm -hmm. um, well, girls, a lot of teenage girls, regardless of their gender identity, want to kill themselves. I mean, like being a teenager fucking sucks. Being a teenager sucks. <laughs> it really sucks. I don't know what's going to happen with my kid. And I would never tell a parent of a mm -hmm. kid who's in stress how to deal with that or that you know, their, their reality is invalid because it's different from mine. And I, I'm, I'm not interested in disabusing those people of, of the path they're taking. And I don't know what path my family will go on. However, talking about identity and pronouns constantly so much so that it takes up all the space where we should be talking about stereotypes is something I do want to fix. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it needs to be one or the other. But mm -hmm. I do think that parents look at their kids and they say, wow, 
I didn't believe that gender was biological until my three-year-old daughter got so into the the princess thing. And now I see it's biological and they don't realize that like what's biological is, is belong, wanting to belong to a category and then really working hard to perfect the stereotypes associated with that category. And the stereotypes are not that hard to disabuse children mm-hmm. from their embrace of. There's mm-hmm. so much research about you show, you take a bunch of kids in a room and you show them pictures of a girl playing with cars. And then you say, is a car a girl's toy or a boy's toy? And they say, it's a girl's toy. It's not that hard, but there has to be political will. There has to be economic will. There has to be social will to say, oh, we don't, we don't have to participate in the gendering of kids, material and psychic worlds. And the more we label stuff as boy stuff and girl stuff, the more we present, prevent them from having healthy exploration of all the good stuff, all the good toys and personality traits and skills and ideas that are thought of as boy and girl. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to refocus us on that without invalidating this, uh, this experience that other parents and kids are having. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. It's unsatisfying for you, but um, I mean, this is, this is um, just, this is a whole world for lesbians. This is, this is, this is an actual existential crisis. So, um, I mean, we're, we're deep in the thick of it right now with, with exactly the same um, problems that, uh, what were you going to say? Well, a very interesting thing happened four days ago in England, and it has not been covered in the press at all. And to be honest, although I am speaking on a podcast and lots of people will hear it, um, I've had a very hard time selling these pieces that I write about the most important things about gender. And they're very good pieces, and I've never had trouble selling them before. But you I'm, are a very good writer. <laughs> I think. I think I also know a lot about this subject now, and I'm really able to to talk about it in a way that can like try to show you something. Like you said before, so many people think they already know everything there is to know about gender because they've had these experiences, but there's so much more, and it's amazing to learn about it. And so I've been writing these pieces that that are very hard to push through in, mm-hmm. in the current because of the news cycle but also because of the terror that many news outlets have after post JK Rowling and just like not wanting to have nuanced things about gender or talk about biological sex as a thing that exists because we are mammals right mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It's not to say that you can't change aspects of your sex but and it's not to say that there aren't intersex people. However, we are ultimately, yeah. we're, we have sex and we're mammals. And so but there's just, I think there's terror in acknowledging that. And um, so four or five days ago in the UK, the Department of Ed there passed new guidelines about talking to kids and teaching kids about gender. And they say straight up, you should not suggest to a child that he or she or they have a different gender identity because they don't hew to gender stereotypes. This is huge news. This is huge. No mm-hmm. one has covered it. I'm writing about like, how can we do this without seeing it as anti-trans? Because the truth is that gender stereotypes 
affect all children and gender identity, not, not having a congruent gender identity with your sex affects a small group of children and we should support those children. But the stereotype stuff is for everybody. Mm-hmm. And having experienced this thing where my kid is getting this message all the time of, you must not be a girl because you're not hewing to stereotypes. This, this feels like giant news to me, but mm-hmm. I just think the media generally are afraid to talk about it. But it's I a think big deal. it is a big deal. And I hope that that conversation gets ignited in the United States because the, the UK women have worked so hard to, um, to have this conversation and to bring it to the public and to end the t- taboo around it. Cause exactly like you're saying, no one will speak about this. We can, it is now um, taboo to even have the conversation because it creates so much vitriol. Um, mostly on Twitter, like real life people don't have a problem um, describing the human species as sexually dimorphic. Like we all, we all understand that mammals um, reproduce and that there's two sexes with like a very small percentage of intersexuality that, that doesn't um, in any way invalidate that dimorphism. But the point is that uh, the, the conversation that you're describing is uh, where educators are being told to not tell kids that they might be trans or that they might be abnormal, that they might be deviant is this is exactly what is happening um, all over the United States. And, um, you know, I, I hear from, um, people about their children all the time or, or friends of friends, children all the time that, you know, a little boy who likes Moana might be a girl and, and other absurd things that are, um, essentially making it impossible for kids to be three dimensional. Yeah. Um, And of course that the rush to classify and as opposed to just like, you like Moana, great. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, you know, is that kid going to be trans? Could be. Is that kid going to be gay? Could be. Are there tomboys who grow up to be lesbians? Lots of them. Are, are there tomboys who grow up to be trans? Some of them. Are there tomboys who grow up to be uh, straight, cis? Yes. So it's, are there trans people who were completely gender conforming as children? Yes. There's just all kinds. And so for us to impose our adult our adult ideas of gender norms onto kids, actually, it just, it can be liberating for some kids. Like if, if you're a very feminine boy and you get new pronouns and then people leave you alone, then it works for you the same way that the word tomboy did all this work for girls who did not want to do what girls were supposed to do. And they got this word and people left them alone and let them be different. Mm -hmm. How, how do we, how do we just, what, what words do we need? What language do we, do we use to finally understand that your body isn't, isn't going to dictate like what movie you like? Mm -hmm. Because, and that uh, that really speaks to one of the most important aspects of your book and of your uh, of your thesis that I don't want um, listeners to miss out on, and that is that there um, there are direct beneficiaries. There are people who win when individuals change their entire behavior, not only as consumers but as individuals in terms of 
how they act, what they wear, um, you know, what they consume um, for the rest of their lifetimes. And it, it all, um, it, it all in many ways comes down to marketing and <laughs> yeah. creating consumers. So one of the, one of my favorite quotes from the book was uh, you had described the Legos in um, the 1970s, you know, in the 1970s girls played with Legos and uh, they weren't color coded. They weren't girly. Um, and you said that in, in 1981, Legos were simple and gender neutral. The creativity of the child produced the message. In 2014, it's the reverse. The toy delivers a message to the child, and this message is weirdly about gender. And here you're you're quoting um, you're quoting another tomboyologist, um, but I think this message is basically um, a good summary of a lot of this book. The um, the toys are are the toys and the um, marketing companies, whether it's Disney, Amazon, um, all these toy makers are essentially grooming kids. And, and you know, what is the outcome of this? Well, that's the, that's the question. What is the outcome? On the one hand, the outcome is this cultural conversation about toxic masculinity and girls low self-esteem and, you know, leaky pipeline, all of the adult gender conversations we have about the crises on the, among men and women are related to um, the way these children are groomed. I love how you put that. And how ridiculously narrow the message of nor it is. And like the, just that there's so much more of it. It's there's not, so more. it's not just boy, girls have dresses, you know, Mm -hmm. It's everything. And even when we make now gender neutral things, they're often missing the point for me, which is you don't need any more new stuff. You mm -hmm. don't have to make, you know, it's cute. They made the gender fluid dolls, but mm -hmm. <laughs> all you have to do is sell the dolls, the regular dolls to the boys, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Just have to open up you just have to stop saying that pink stuff is for girls and blue stuff is for boys. You can actually sell twice as many things that way. It, if you, if you start reimagining that way of like, Oh, well boys can buy this makeup set. So actually I have twice as many potential consumers for this. I I'm, I'm working on a developing a talk for businesses to show them that their idea that this is the only way for them to make money is to impose gender onto that stuff is not true. That you have, if every child is a potential consumer for your item, you actually can sell more. So beyond these like crises that we see with boys and girls, which are all about how we raise them differently. Right. Are, then there's also the question of, yeah, what is this? what is the psychological impact of the hypergendering of childhood? And there's very, very little scientific literature on it because we only have answers to the questions we ask. Mm -hmm. Boring psychologists to ask this question. Mm -hmm. What has this done to kids when every aspect of their lives is gendered? And we have so much research now on trans kids and there's fairly minimal research on 
tomboys. There's some, and I looked through as much of it as I could. But my questions are about all kids. And I, and I say over and over when I write pieces now that whenever we use the word gender, we immediately think it's an LGBTQ issue. But it's like this gender affects every creature on the planet. Right. And what I'm talking about affects all kids. And it's, it's just as it's going to be just as good for trans kids as it's going to be for trans kids to relax the gendering of their material worlds. I think that another thing that is really interesting about um, your book is that you, you talk about the trend of um, tomboys growing up into super capable, um, highly efficient, intelligent, you know, dynamic women. And I think that one of the, it, it is so important to think about the ways we may constrict um, girls' childhood and boys' childhood, of course. I don't um, need to leave them out of the conversation. But we have to remember that this is going to essentially completely rewrite a generation of adult women in terms of what they believe themselves to be capable of and, and what they're interested in being capable of. Yeah, one of the, I mean, it was fascinating to me that I interviewed so many different people, different ages, different gender identities, different sexualities, different races, different classes, and their childhoods were remarkably similar. Mm. And their adulthoods were really different. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, and this is a self-selecting group. These are people who agreed to be interviewed. So I'm not saying that this is true for every single person who has ever been identified as a tomboy, but I was really struck by their self-confidence and mm. they did not spend their childhoods getting these messages that girls got. Mm-hmm. They were often perceived as boys, treated as boys. Um, and that means that there was an assumption of, you know, physical strength and emotional capability and, you know, they independence. Were, independence, all of these things that we mark as masculine. I think parents really think they treat their kids the same, but all of the reasons that they don't. Yeah. Because my daughter has at times, most of her life has been treated like a boy because she, she has been taken as a boy, but there have been a few periods where she grew her hair out and people treated her like a girl and it was so different. I mm-hmm. mean, we were cracking up, but it was also, it, it was wild, you mm-hmm. know, it was sad. And I feel like people who do the work that I do, we often come to the same conclusion, which is boys need to be treated a little bit more like girls and girls need to be treated a little bit more like boys. Mm-hmm. We just need to treat them similarly and have similar expectations. And it's, easy for me to say that as a parent of girls because there's much less taboo it's much harder for the parents of boys to say like you know what i'm gonna do for little johnny i'm gonna put him in a tiara and a pink tutu and send him to preschool yeah it's it's hard for them but it's once again i go back to the stuff has only the gender we impose onto it Mm -hmm. and because the tiara and the tutu are also associated with kindness and other centeredness and gentleness and grace and all this quote unquote feminine stuff. It's 
it's really important to let little Johnny know that that stuff belongs to him too. Mm-hmm. Remarkably, all children are entitled to the full spectrum of human emotions. <laughs> wild, <laughs> wild. It's amazing. And it, it must be very hard for these boys who learn by age three that they're not supposed to be the way they instinctively want to be, which is like crying and needing help, you know, and being interested in lots and lots of different stuff. I I just appreciate what, what you said earlier that um, we have to ask the question in order, because you don't get answers that you're not asking questions to. And I think that this, um, this book is definitely just the beginning. I, I think that people should um, think critically about the, um, as we like, you know, try to um, sort of from the top down mandate uh, gender acceptance or gender neutrality that the um, in doing so we are really entrenching gender stereotypes and yeah it's just um, I have a lot of questions and I want answers and they're not gonna they're not gonna get answers if we don't yes. ask <laughs> and we also have to be allowed to ask those questions in the mainstream center and left media and not just ask in the right-wing media. You know, I do not want to be, I do not want to be forced to write for certain right-wing publications. I want to ask these questions in the Times, in the Post, you know, on CNN, these places I've written for. I want to have these discussions there because the people on the right are, are not open to nuanced debate about it. And I don't want the people on the left to be the same, the same, to be mm-hmm. equally shut off. And I, I completely understand how threatening it, some of these conversations feel and, and mm-hmm. some of the research about gender and, you know, the way women are and the biology, whether I agree with it or not, is threatening to me. It can be hard to read these things, but I didn't, stop myself from taking that in. And I didn't stop myself from interviewing people I disagreed with. And I actually, a couple of them, I, I really like them. I think some of the stuff they're saying is bullshit, but I like them. And some of the stuff they said was interesting to me and useful. And how- Yeah. I know. Imagine a world where there was a time when the the liberal dream was one of tolerant free speech. And I just, it's wild to imagine that time now, because at this point it, it's so hard to have conversations with people with whom you disagree and have those be something that other people know about. Like you can get in trouble for having conversations with Republicans or for liking Republicans. You know, if you say like, um, Whatever the, I, I think it's really interesting though because I I agree that this conversation needs to happen. This conversation needs to happen everywhere. It needs to happen in the right wing media and in the left wing media. It's too bad that there isn't really a neutral zone in media anymore. But I think that I, I've been really surprised and um, touched by the number of um, conservative and even right wing people who have been willing to engage with me about it issues of gender and sexuality 
you know, because being a lesbian, I, 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 been told I'm going to hell, and, and I understand well, that. Gender right by being a lesbian, right? That's one of the things, right? If you're doing gender right as a woman, then you're with a man. It's all right, connected. right, right. Um, and so, um, and so, I do feel like um, I feel like there is a remarkable amount of space in, um, to have these conversations with people that you would not expect to be able to have the conversation with, and yet the um, the mainstream needs to be brave enough and bold enough to um, to dip their toes into the waters of heterodoxy. I mean, we have to be able to yeah. hold numerous opinions and sometimes simultaneously. I you know? <laughs> sometimes we're going to have to hold <laughs> other people's truths simultaneously. We have to be able to handle contradictions, especially if you're going to talk about gender because it's full of contradictions and each side, each whatever stance anyone has taken, their argument is going to be full of holes and contradictions. Mm -hmm. And it's a big mess. And I don't want to belittle the people who are saying, hey, your idea of a big mess is my like fight for basic rights and acceptance. I understand that. And again, I try to be sensitive to that. But, you know, who gets to determine the boundaries of the categories of who gets to be in what category, who gets to determine what's normal. Mm-hmm. These are questions that we need to ask and like be able to, to try to hammer it out. Especially because the, the left positions itself as the, um, the, you know, side that understands, agrees with, or promotes science. And they also advertise themselves as being the ones concerned with capitalism. Yeah. And two of the things that are so scary about this and what you talk about at your, at, in your book at length is the, um, the, the profit motivation for, um, for all of these gendered things, whether everything from, you know, gender reveal parties. So getting gender when you're, a zygote all the way through when you're an adult. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, made. Yeah. And we can't even have a, we can't even have a talk about um, the profit motivation, much less the way that this is going to impact people across classes and the ability to access gender performance based on class. It's just not something that it's something that should be the left's bread and butter as the, um, you know, the side that cares about um, class and um, science and, and these other things, free speech. I mean, it's just, it's just not being represented in this debate at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm finding it a hard time to be a journalist and I am, I want to be sensitive. I want to be supportive. And I also want to make these points that feel so important to me that I keep thinking, if we could learn to think about this differently, if you, if, if these different sides could learn to understand what, what each person has at stake, then couldn't we figure out how to move forward together? Because we're all saying that we don't want our bodies to, to be, to limit us. Mm -hmm. We mean that in different ways, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we're saying we, we just have, I think more in common than we think, which is actually what you said at the, at the beginning of this, that we are not necessarily the, the kind of 
feminist trans debate. Not every feminist is anti-trans and not every trans person is anti-feminist. And there's plenty of overlap, but there's also just so much misunderstanding. And also so much, so, so little information about what we know and what, what we don't know. I feel like channeling Donald Rumsfeld and talking about, Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, people are coming out and saying, this is what gender is and this is how it works with all this certainty. And if you mm-hmm. don't agree with me, you're a hater. Well, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't know exactly why, why are some super masculine gender nonconforming girls, why do they grow up to be lesbians? We don't know why. It was hard to do the study, the, the one study that was going to do, follow that got canceled in the, I think in the early nineties when the parents found out that that's what one of the researchers was interested in. Mm. They were going to track tomboys over many years. And one of the researchers wanted to find out how many were going to be lesbians. And the that's interesting. And canceled it. So we don't, you know, we can see some correlations between behaviors and identities, but causation isn't there. There's some mystery. It's good to study it, but it's also good to embrace a certain amount of the mystery. And to one thing we do know for certain, I mean, is that gender as in norms and stereotypes is mostly a construction because we've seen so many times when our idea of what was boy typical or, or, or girl typical gets swapped or mutates. Right. And it's bound by time and culture bound by time and culture and we can change it. And I think that is, is so interesting to know, even in when we return to the conversation about what's going on in the UK, because just based on culture, even though we have so much in common and we share a language and we share, um, we share so much history, there are nuances in the right and wrong way to perform gender in UK versus us culture. And I think I've seen, I've seen those, in my experiences with um, having friends who are from the UK or from Canada, I mean, um, Germany, France, like what is expected of women in Germany in terms of how they present, look, act in public is completely different. When I went to Germany, every fucking woman on the train, I was like, oh, there's a hot lesbian. And then, <laughs> and then she'd show up with her, her husband and her two kids, no. you know, the husband's ba- wearing the babies. And I'm like, oh, shit, that's not a butch dyke. That's that's not my dream girl. That's just a yeah. normal heterosexual. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I, I took out that there, I had a section about that in the book that was about this butch lesbian in Canada who did a lot of research on gender in rural Ontario. And she kept interviewing these women who, if they lived in the city, would be seen as butch, mm. but they were just in the countryside with short hair and flannel. Practical. And- yeah. And yeah. I, you know, I took that part out, which was sad for my mom because I had written hi mom in the parentheses there because, you know, my mom in rural Massachusetts also has looked pretty butch for years and years. And I guess if you plunked her down someone else, somewhere else, she'd be read that way. But there's just a lot of older women in New England who look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we make assumptions about people all the time. And we can't live in a world without assumptions because we can't navigate if we don't slot things into categories. But I do think 
that when it comes to children, you know, I talk about tomboy as being this protective bubble of ambiguity and that allowed these girls all, this freedom to just do whatever the hell they wanted to do. And mm -hmm. I, I think that adults think that having all of these new identities is, is another way of doing that. And it might, it might be, but the more we could just protect them from having to know who they are already, the more they can develop into, as you say, like three-dimensional, fully functional human beings. <laughs> and that's where, you know, that's where my like passion is with this book of, I just want you to read this and see what's happened and that you don't have to do it. We just, we don't have to, we don't have to do it this way. We can opt out of the hypergendering of childhood, but mm -hmm. we, we have to have the will to do it. And we have to have the information about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I, I so appreciate, I know you've given me a lot of extra time and, and way more than was scheduled. I so appreciate it. It's been a really, uh, a really fascinating and enriching conversation. So I, I know our reader, our readers and listeners are going to love, and I just want to say thank you so much. And I want to say, I'm going to light a candle and say a little prayer to Sappho tonight that you place whatever article you were talking about regarding this big news in the UK. Cause we're actually going to be writing a, a little bit about that this week. Um, and all the things that are happening with mermaids, UK, the gender recognition act, um, reforms that, um, Anyway, I'm, I'm super excited for you and I would love to read um, whatever you come up with on that topic. So I'm definitely going to be saying a little prayer that it gets, that it gets placed you. and fast. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And thank you for your interest in being such a smart interviewer. And <laughs> well, thank you. fun to talk to you. All right. Well, thanks again. And you have a good one. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs>